Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Welcome, I'm Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical. I could not be any more effusive about my guest this week. Uh, He personally means so very much to me. Tony Award-winning composer Tom Kitt. You may recognize his work from the musicals Jagged Little Pill, American Idiot, and SpongeBob SquarePants. Lin-Manuel Miranda has declared him amongst the best melodists of our generation. And if you know anything about me, I love melody. Tom has won a Pulitzer Prize for drama with his play Next to Normal, two Tony Awards, and an Emmy. Tom and I discuss his path to success, the length of time from inception to Broadway, the cross-pollination of musicals, TV, and film, and collaborating with such legends as Lin-Manuel Miranda, Cameron Crowe, and Green Day. Not only is Tom extremely talented, but he is also one of the loveliest and compassionate humans walking the planet. Up next, my conversation with composer Tom Kitt. Hey, Tom. Hello, Nick. How are you? Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's a huge honor for me to be here. And I just have to start out by saying that uh, you were the first person. Don't start. This no, but I have to, because as a, as a, as a, as a intern at Columbia Records and, and, and all these big dreams of, of, of making it in music and doing something and being really intimidated by the environment, you were somebody who, who gave me real guidance and took an interest. And uh, I'm always going to be so grateful for that. So when you reached out to me to, to have a conversation with you today, I was very excited. My pleasure. I may have been the other only person that gave you really poor advice, though, too, with your career, because I'm quite sure I understood you were getting an economics degree at Columbia University. And you kept talking to me about this comp- composer career you wanted. And I was like, you're out of your mind. Your parents are going to kill you if you pursue this path. So I think I gave you uh, bad advice during that time. So I just no, want to be on record. Me, you gave me really good advice, actually. You came to my first, one of my first big gigs um, down at Arlene Grocery and, um, and, and gave me some very honest <laughs> <laughs> feedback. Not me. Um, and it put me, uh, it put me on, on, on a much stronger road. So um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful. And it's, it's funny that you say that because, because there I was watching you in, in, in a room filled with artists that you um, developed and took an interest in and changed lives. And, and so to say, to say you, you're crazy to do this, as I was watching the passion all around you, you know I wasn't going to listen to that. <laughs> I had to do something for your parents. I just had to do one, <laughs> one little... They got like the economics degree. They, they, they won. They won out. Everyone's won. So you've all won. So I'm so proud of you that uh, you don't even understand. Um, so you're in New York. I mean, theater and Broadway is kind of dark, of course. Um, so how is this affecting you with your future work, current work? Well, yeah, it's devastating. Uh, no one could have ever foreseen something like this, and the uncertainty of it, um, the uh, just the, the to, to see the the decimation that, that that this causes, both in terms of 
things that were supposed to happen, but also livelihoods, people who have had to move out of New York, people who are trying to make ends meet. Um, and uh, it's just, it's a crisis. It's an enormous crisis. And, um, and for me, who had things in motion that were about to happen in the previous season, uh, it was just, it was loss. It was, uh, we, we were, I was grieving all spring for, um, for the things that, that I saw were about to happen. Uh, in terms of current work, um, it's really just a pause button that's been hit and you don't know when it will be released. Um, I have uh, a show uh, at Lincoln Center called Flying Over Sunset that I've written with James Lapine and Michael Corey, and that has been announced a couple of times. The, the latest is that it's happening in the fall of 21, but we'll have to see. Um, I also have The Visitor um, uh, with uh, another, another score that I've written with Brian Yorkie, which I'm really excited about. And um, Kwame Kwe Arma is the um, uh, book writer. Um, and um, that's uh, based on the Tom McCarthy um, film, beautiful film from 2007. And the set is literally in the theater. We were to begin um, uh, uh, tech. We were going to have our Zitz probe um, Friday, March 13th. Um, and that was the day that the visitor went on pause. So, so those are just waiting for the go. Um, and then there's things like Almost Famous. We had done our out-of-town uh, last summer and fall um, at the um, Old Globe in S San Diego. Um, and that went very well. And so um, we're just waiting for, um, again, that to resume. Uh, and then there are other things that, I'm, that I had in motion that I'm still working on and, and new things that have come out of this pause. Um, certainly things that you can do in isolation because it's development work, it's writing work, but there's a new mentality, obviously. The things that you thought you knew, the things that were feeding your creativity um, have completely changed. There's a new reality. And for me as an artist, it's, 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 it's a bit strange to write about the alternate reality world, right? Where, where, we're, where it's 2019 and we're going through our daily routines in that way it's just it's not there right now we're wearing masks we're not able to um greet people the way we did we're not able to be in a in indoor space uh performing so so it's it's for me just just in terms of what i'm connecting to um it's it's challenging to sort of go back into that alternate world and some of the things that i'm really excited about are things that are stories that i'm developing based on what's happening right now i'm writing a song cycle with some of my um, uh, friends and, and just brilliant artists who I, I felt would have um, really important, profound things to share right now. So I reached out to them and said, send me any thoughts that you have about a subject or you know, it could be as, as big or small as you want and let's create a song together. So that feels like something that's very much of the here and now to make. Um, and, and, and those I can really rise up to meet and I'm still, uh, the, the things outside of this, the things that are escapism or or in motion, um, are still feeding me, and I'm really excited about them. But but it's just a different mindset, and part of part of what happens as an artist is creativity comes from a positive space. You feel a burst of excitement and adrenaline as you're making something, no matter what the subject matter is. It's still it's speaking in your creative heart, and this pandemic for me took that positive creative space away. 
and I had to rebuild it based on what I'm feeling now. And that's been a process. Um, who, I, I mean, I don't want to get dark about this because you and I were just talking about optimism that we're going to come through this <laughs> and everything's going to be great. Right. But in your world and like the theater world, who's going to like maybe be permanently damaged here? I mean, will the bit actors that kind of do chorus lines and, you know, whatever, sing back up. I mean, are those guys decimate? Is it the crew, the technical crew? Who, who's really going to, yeah. I think it's certainly it's anybody who has to really contemplate whether they can continue as an artist working in the theater. Um, Because the longer it takes to come back, the harder it's going to be. Um, People who moved away from New York City and maybe won't return. Um, So, I believe in resiliency. I believe that that we'll be back and and uh, there will be a glorious, glorious revival of theater. People will just, I know I will weep the first night I'm in a theater watching actors on stage and hearing music. Um, so that is something I think to really look forward to, but the toll um, before we get there is, is enormous. And I, I think we really do have to fear for um, the cost uh, to, to theater and to, to the arts in general. Everyone is struggling for survival. And at a certain point, you have to be able to start coming down the mountain. Just, it just feels like we're constantly climbing. And every time you feel like there's a, a ray of light, then another unexpected um, setback comes in. And um, I'm sure uh, any industry that's facing what, 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 what my industry is, 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 is having those questions, doing that thought experiment of when do you just say, okay, we have to, for our survival, we have to, in an imperfect world, um, we have to figure out a way to start coming back. Uh, we will. It'll happen. We will. I just don't know, just don't know when and how, but, but we will. Yeah, no one can live without the arts. I don't care what they say, <laughs> if anyone does say that, no. but there's no, no. way. And, and theater's always been the, 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 the art form that relies on the live experience. That was part of, because for me, and I know you have, would have a lot to say about this, but um, to watch what happened to the recording industry um, in, as, as, as the, you know, the digital age came, came about and, and, and the downloads were happening. And um, I always felt safe in theater because even though you would see on YouTube someone recorded uh, from the balcony a show, you just people that was never going to compete with being there in person. And we've seen how Broadway and theater has just been—it's uh, been skyrocketing in terms of attendance and and in terms of the economy. Um, so it's it's just crazy that that thing that felt so safe is now the most precarious in a situation like we're in. So I want to talk a little bit about your career path a little bit. Um, I mean, in breakthroughs and struggles and, you know, all that come <laughs> with that. Um, it's never a hockey stick, is it? It's always a little different on a graph. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. yep. So would you say, I mean, is next to normal, is that your breakthrough in your mind? Or was there something earlier to that? That I mean, I, obviously that launched you into the stratosphere, but was there earlier breakthroughs along that that kept you going? Because that was almost, uh, you'd worked on that for what, 10 years before you got to Broadway? I worked on that for 11 years to Broadway 11. from the first. Um, I think every artist would, if, if you had to sort of go along the path, you would find 
little moments where it could have gone either way and you needed some luck, you needed some support. So certainly next to normal was the thing that, yes, that launched me, that made me feel like I was, um, at least for a while, <laughs> nothing is for sure, but, but I, I felt like I, I, I had arrived and, um, and, and could feel secure that I was going to get the opportunity to continue to write for the theater um, at the level that I want, that I've always dreamed of doing. But um, I look at getting into the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, which is where Next Normal began. And I had been rejected, Brian and I had been rejected the first year we applied. So we applied again and got in. And that actually was the best stroke of luck for me because it was that second year of applying that put me in the class with Amanda Green and um, Tom Miser and Curtis Moore um, and um, Bobby uh, Lopez and Jeff Marks. You know, we had this incredible group of artists that we were all feeding off of. Um, and Amanda was hugely influential for me because I became her musical director and started to meet a number of wonderful performers and writers. I was just, I was just right smack in the middle of the theater world with Amanda. And that was really exciting. Um, never mind the fact that, that we became great friends and collaborators and ended up writing High Fidelity together. Um, so, so that was a win after a loss, right? Getting rejected from the, from the uh, workshop and then accepted. Um, and of course, High Fidelity happens. And that's really exciting. My first Broadway show, um, Dave Lindsay Abair writing the book and uh, Jeffrey Seller, Kevin McCollum and Robin Goodman producing who had just won the Tony Award for Avenue Q. Um, so we felt like we were on this great ride and then flop. And that was devastating. I had, I had quit a number of jobs that I was doing to make ends meet that I suddenly had to go and ask if I could come back to. It was, and there was that uncertainty of, am I, am I going to be able to have a career in this? Um, previous to uh, High Fidelity opening, uh, it had looked like Next Normal, which at that point was called Feeling Electric, was going to um, we were going to stop working on it. Brian and I had, uh, Brian had moved out to the West Coast and we just, like any artist does, had real insecurity and doubt about whether that show was going to ever be more than what it had gotten to at that point. And it had done a, a good amount. We had done workshops out in Seattle at Village Theater. We had a major concert in New York with Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts. Um, so we thought maybe that's, maybe that's it. And then um, Village Theater applied to the Jonathan Larson Foundation on behalf of the show, and we were granted a workshop. And that led to the New York Musical Theater Festival, which is where Second Stage and David Stone saw it. So all these little things that it could have gone either way. We could have stopped working on Next Normal. Maybe they don't apply to the Jonathan Larson Foundation. Um, that's really, when you look back on an artist's career, you say there are so many things that had to happen to get to this point. Um, and when you look at Next to Normal, as I said, 11 years later, um, that, that easily could have gone a different way. So yes, that was definitely the thing that uh, brought me um, you know, my first big success and made a name for myself. But so many people who believed in me and, and helped me along the way um, made that happen. Can you explain the, um, for people listening that maybe aren't Broadway um, literate? myself included. Um, <laughs> like what is like the workshopping processes versus like these previews you do versus finally on to Broadway. Can you explain that train ride a little bit? So, yeah. So uh, every process is different for writing a musical, but, but I think on average, they're probably four to five years from the time of 
you say, okay, let's go to uh, opening. Uh, and let's say opening on Broadway. Not every show is meant to come to Broadway. But um, so, so at first you have to create your, your first draft. And if it's a musical, um, you want to write a treatment and song spot. You basically just pick all the moments that you think uh, will generate songs to really make sure that your story sings. Um, so you'll do some kind of treatment that will then lead you to your first draft. And that may be something that is consists of a script and demos that the composer would do. And if you feel like you're far along enough to want to hear it out loud, then you'll do a reading. And basically you'll just get the actors in a room and you'll put them all at music stands. So there's no staging. There is some choreography to a reading in terms of whether people stand when they're singing or speaking or sit down, or is there some kind of um, placement of actors, but it's really just to hear the, the material out loud. And um, I've seen that process develop from um, uh, only a piano in the room to now sometimes percussion or other instruments. If you're doing American Idiot, for example, doing a reading on the piano is not really going to give you what you need to hear it. So the very first reading of American Idiot, I had five-piece band, so I could really hear the music. Um, so you'll do that reading, and then if, you f if that goes really well, um, you, you maybe do a second reading, or you might go to a work session. And the work session, um, I've seen and been involved with musicals um, where they are fully staged. Almost famous, we did staged work sessions. Um, so the actors have four weeks, um, most, most likely off book, um, and, and really perform the musical in a rehearsal room and you invite people to, to see it. And um, that may be investors, that may be um, regional theaters, but, but you're, you're, you're serious enough about the work that now you want to really look at the trajectory. Um, and obviously the pedigree of a creative team and a producing team has a lot to say about that. There are um, people whose track record will um, ensure them that they can have, if, if, if a regional theater is interested and they know who's working on it, they might say, well, we want to, we, we know we want to do this. So we're going to find a way to, to work it with all of our schedules. Um, but anyway, that work session goes well. Um, it may be now leading up to your uh, out of town tryout. So we springboarded from the almost famous work sessions to the production at the Old Globe. Now, almost famous went fast. I first met Cameron Crowe in the summer of 2017 and we were in production summer of 2019. So we wrote that in two years. That's, that's fast for a musical. Um, the thing about Next to Normal is that it was Brian and my first album. So they say you spend your whole life writing your first album and then you get six months to write your second one. <laughs> right. But, but we, we went backwards with Next to Normal. We wrote songs before we outlined and song spotted. So we had a bunch of songs we ended up throwing out and then we do these workshops and then we would take a break from it. So it was 11 years, but it wasn't 11 years continuously. Um, but uh, we had a lot of, 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 of workshops and readings of Next to Normal because every time we would go to a new um, part of the process, it would usually be with, with, with new collaborators. Once we got to second stage of David Stone and Michael Greif, then we developed it with the same people for a while. We really were able to hone in on the show. But there was a lot that Brian and I were flying by the seat of our pants. We're trying to trying to support ourselves as 20 year olds in New York city and trying to figure out if we, we can even do this career that we dreamed of. So, um, now that I, um, am, am really working in the, in the world of musical theater, 
the process has a, a more predictable trajectory, even though you can't predict how many years it will take. Right. So the 11 years developing it and receiving 11 Tony nominations, does that uh, validate you then for each year that you put into it? And you that, won, right? You won for score, uh, Tony, yes, and, and yes, you won the Pulitzer Prize, right, for drama? That play? Yes, we won the Pulitzer for drama and we won, uh, next time we won three Tony Awards. Brian and I won for score, Michael Starobin and I won for orchestrations, and Alice Ripley won for uh, leading actress. Nice, nice. And how involved, like, is, you know, you're known more as a composer um, and an arranger um, in certain aspects, I guess maybe with more established work, you're an arranger, I guess. Like American Idiot was, I mean, that music existed. So you were more the arranger. You're not the composer. Yes. Yes. I mean, for anything, you have to put your writing hat on. And especially for something like American Idiot or Jagged Little Pill, um, there has to be uh, a process of taking an album and putting it into the world of musical theater. Um, so how do you do that? How do you speak in both languages and not... Um, compromise anything that has made that album the brilliant iconic work that it is. So there's a process and uh, that process is done with Alanis Morissette, with Green Day, with the Go-Go's when I worked on Head Over Heels. Um, and, and that process I outlined of a musical is what you do and you hear it in a reading, you hear it in a work session. Um, and as you start to add characters, vocal arrangements, the story dictates a moment. We were talking the other night about You Ought to Know, and I was saying that was a song that I wanted to deconstruct a little bit in Jagged Little Pill because um, a groove, if a song begins with a groove, it feels a little bit formed, right? You have, you're being, you're, you're in motion already. And in the musical of Jagged Little Pill, that's a very naked moment to begin with. There's a lot of anger and hurt and pain, and you don't know where this character is going to take it. So I wanted to start a little smaller little less in time and then build into the groove. And it's really satisfying when you get there. But those are the things that you discover in the rehearsal process. So, but I'm thinking as a writer, I'm thinking as a creator uh, for a musical score in, in a musical, what does this moment need to do? Um, and that doesn't change whether you're composing it or arranging it. And I mean, do you feel, I mean, since you're mainly score guy in an original type composition, What's your contribution to actually like the story or to like what's being told then? Or, or do you have input into that? Or is the guy who writes the book or the woman who writes the book, the only person that speaks to that? How does that work? It's really collaborative. And that's the beautiful thing about musicals um, that everybody on the creative team it, um, has something to say, something important to say about the story. Um, it is definitely the book writer's job. And at the end of the day, I always say this is for you to, take in however you want, here's an observation, here's a thought. Um, because sometimes as we know, when we're just looking at this one thing, we don't always see some of the peripheral things. And so you rely on those other sets of eyes um, that are experienced and, um, and equally creative um, to, to ask important questions. So, um, so I definitely um, We'll, we'll, we'll talk story. And I'll always make sure I'll say, I had some, some thoughts if you're interested. Is there a time we can talk? I don't, I don't ever want to bombard someone because there's always a lot that's going on. But, but yeah, we, we all, we all want to um, contribute to the, um, to, to the musical success and, and the clarity. And I get great musical notes from the director, um, from the book writer. Um, 
because they just, whether you can name it, you're sitting in the theater, you're experiencing the show, if something doesn't read quite right, um, you want to bring it up. And when you work with someone like at a level of like Cameron Crow, who's been around for decades and done some exceptional work, um, like how does he participate then with like Almost Famous? Like what becomes his role in that? Well, Cameron is almost famous. So, yes. <laughs> um, so he's really the one that we all um, rely on for everything. So Cameron, uh, and especially because he lived that, um, his, his, um, he needs to be consulted really everywhere. Um, the design of the musical, um, and of course, the music. Um, and for me, one, he's one of my heroes. So to be able to be in the room with him and to be, have become as close, like we're, we're, we're really close, the two of us. And that's, that's a great gift. Tell myself hi. I haven't talked um, to him since singles back in the nineties, but uh, tell well, him I said again, hi. One of the, my wife and I were, were, were first dating when that movie came out <laughs> and she had a poster of it. So, um, so for, for both of us, for Rita and I, it was hugely meaningful to, to get to be in Cameron's world. Um, and he's a walking encyclopedia of music yeah. and the knowledge. So everything, I, I, I was, I was uh, extremely um, intimidated when, when it began. Um, but he's so passionate and kind um, that it quickly just became a love fest for music. And, uh, and we sort of geeked out. Um, so uh, we, we had a burst of creativity right away. Uh, I think I've mentioned we met in the summer of 17. Uh, we had our first work sessions, uh, me, Cameron, and Jeremy Heron, the, mute, the director um, in New York that, that um, winter. And we wrote a burst of songs. And that was where I felt like, okay, we, we, have a, we now have a hold on what the musical is going to be. It, all, it feels right. And those songs, most of them are, are still in the show and, and carrying enormous weight for the show. So. What's the status of that show? Where is that show playing? So what's the status? Where where's it at? Almost famous. It's it's literally just waiting for when Broadway comes back. Um, it didn't open on Broadway. Opened, no, not on Broadway, but it had a very successful um, out of town tryout at at the Old Globe in San Diego, which um, ran um, last. Uh, it closed last October, the end of October, and it was extended. Um, so, uh, we obviously like any musical that's in development, we, we know we have work to do and we're excited to do that work, but it's really been on pause. We actually went into a studio in February, just before the lockdown and recorded four tracks. Um, and, uh, now just sort of figuring out what we want to do with them. Right. Well, I'll just assume my invitation to the show got <laughs> lost in the mail last fall. Um, <laughs> it, it did. And I apologize. You'll have a, you'll have a, we're back. You'll have a, we'll have a second chance to make it right. Thank you. So the only show I've ever seen you do, I mean, sadly is I've seen American idiot. I haven't seen any of your other work on Broadway. Um, and it's something like that. And like jagged little pill where you actually have the guys that, and the woman who composed this music. I mean, is that more of a challenge? I mean, are you a little bit more, stepping gingerly this is like their babies and is that a tougher gig in a lot of ways well it's we're all fans so it's it's also just the wow factor of looking in a room and there's Lance Morissette sitting there you know, and, and, and you've seen her a million times on television and she's 
meant the world to you in terms of what she's created. Um, and it just never felt like a room you would find yourself in. So, so there's that factor. Um, I remember when Green Day first walked into Carol Studios and uh, you just had to collect yourself because <laughs> there they were. Um, and, and I really, it was, it was American Idiot where I sort of found the process in, 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 in this world um, where I began really carefully because at the end of the day, I felt like, look, I, I, can, I can recreate this album on stage. I can listen to the album, get all of the, you know, we, we, it exists. We can, we can really mimic that and, and, and just have um, phenomenal musicians play it down. Um, but again, because it's a musical and because you have now different characters, different vocal types, singing, um, you have a story, uh, there's going to be some things that are going to have to be, it's an, it's an adaptation. It's not, um, it's not a verbatim uh, recreating. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an adaptation, so you have to adapt. And um, I, I, I proceeded carefully because I really wanted um, to make sure that they um, felt comfortable. This is their first musical and this is their baby. And I often say, um, everyone knows the album, so they're going to know what I did. <laughs> it's going to be pretty obvious. Um, so it's, it's a lot of pressure. But at the same time, I, um, I have to trust my instincts that, that I will rise to meet the, the material. And, and something I said early on that Billy Joe really responded to, and I think it's just how I, how I think about it now, is George Martin and the Beatles, because those are undeniable Beatles compositions. But what he added, the string quartet yesterday, all of the orchestrations he did on songs like The Walrus, and um, it, it's, it's that, that part of the sound is equally thrilling to me. And, um, and Billy, Billy Joe is a huge George Martin fan. So we really bonded over that. And I think it really defined my role, which is I am here as the sort of outside observer from the band um, who's worked in musical theater to ask questions. And, and if I feel something uh, new could be a part of this, but again, would not compromise what it is, then we're going to see it through and see how we all feel about it. And how do you, I mean, the, the risk of all this, how long did uh, American Idiot run? It ran just over a year on Broadway. Okay. We're actually supposed to celebrate our, our 10th anniversary back in April with a big 10th anniversary concert, which sadly did not happen. So hopefully 15. Right. So does all that work that you put into this, I mean, look, and some of this stuff is evergreen if there's a soundtrack or whatever you guys call those things with uh, plays. <laughs> what do you call those things? Cast recording. <laughs> Cast recording. Cast recording. There we go. Um, you know, all 11 years on Next to Normal, a lot of work in American Idiot. Next to Normal was off. I mean, was it, it closed after less than two years? After 11 Emmy Awards or Tony Awards? About, it ran about 21 months on Broadway. Would you categorize that as good or would you categorize that as like a little disappointing after 11 Tony Awards or Tony nominations? Well, it's, it's, it's really, really good. It's, it's, it's phenomenal that it ran for 21 months because we opened in the middle of a financial crisis in 2009 without, um, you know, major celebrities. I mean, all, everyone in that cast is a celebrity because of who they are and what they do. but. Um, at that point in 2009, it's a small musical about a serious subject matter. Um, and 
I had been the musical director on 13, Jason Robert Brown's wonderful musical back in the fall when the crisis was just happening and the theaters were half full, filled. I mean, it was eerie to sit out there and see. So, so there was a lot of question about whether a show like Next to Normal could really make it. And the fact that we, we were able to find an audience at that time and then go on to do what we did. Um, and David Stone, our producer, was just, he, he, I, I can't say enough about everything that he did on that show. Um, and, and he sort of saw a trajectory. He said, I think this is gonna be the, the, the window for the show. Um, and you could see like at, at a certain point, it, was, it, it wasn't going to, he didn't want it to start um, diminishing in any way and, 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 um, and just start uh, casting to try to keep the show open. Um, it, it, it felt like the, the right thing, especially um, Jason Danieli and, and my dear friend, Maren Maisie, who, who we sadly lost. Um, it's, it's extremely meaningful that, that, that they were able to be in the show together. And that's, that's where the shows close on Broadway happened in their, in their beautiful hands. Um, and then winning the Pulitzer Prize uh, for drama, obviously uh, an unbelievable um, element to all this and has um, really guaranteed the show's life around the world. So it may not be running on Broadway, but, but before the pandemic and hopefully after, um, it's, it's done everywhere. And, and so the, the story of Next to Normal is being told constantly. Um, you know, American Idiot is, is, is different. That ran a year, and I, th I think that we, with, with, the, um, uh, with the Green Day's fan base, with the, the love for that album, and with what we made on Broadway, which to me was a thrilling night at the theater, um, the expectations were, 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 I think, to run longer. Um, so that was disappointing. Um, but um, what a thrilling run we had to have Billy Joe in the show. Um, and then the national tour actually was hugely successful. And then two other tours happened. And that's another show that's done all over the place. So I think that, that, that the story of American Idiot um, is, is, is still being written. And um, it's always going to obviously speak to the time. When we did it, the design and, and, and the story was obviously was written, it was 2004, I think, when the album came out. So um, at that point, we're looking at, um, at, at the Bush years. It'd be interesting to see what American Idiot would feel like now, because I think, I, I think those songs speak to the moment as much as they ever did, um, or as to say, as much as they always have. Um, and um, and I, I'd be curious, I was talking to someone, a, a young student who was talking about directing the show, and I said, I'd be so interested to see what the design would be like now, um, because we had, if you remember the production, there were, there were a lot of clips from, um, from the political world at that time. So, so what, what would you accompany the story of American Idiot with now? It could become a comedy. <laughs> if you're going to use the clips, it may become a comedy. I don't know. I, I just felt, I felt great inspiration and camaraderie to be in that world with those artists telling that story. We all, it was galvanizing. And that's again, what we're missing right now. We're missing art weighing in. And it, not that it isn't, and people are, I mean, the, the activism is, is, is incredible and inspiring. Um, and, and, and thankfully it's happening. But, um, you know, Joel Gray wrote a, a beautiful piece in, in, in the New York Times and an op-ed about just how we always go to theater in these moments for guidance and comfort and, and, and to be inspired and, and, and to see the mirror, 
to our world, um, and we're really missing that right now. Can you speak a little bit, a little bit outside of creativity into the business side of things? What is I'm trying to understand, and there was a story in the New York Times today about this cross-pollinization of films coming to Broadway, plays going to films, plays opening as films first on Netflix before they're on Broadway or open on Broadway. I'm trying to understand, is this a good trend? I'm trying to understand the trend. It's confusing to me a little, um, but I'm hoping it's maybe good because it's happening in this void when you can't have these public performances. Did you have any? Thoughts on this or give me some guidance. I, I certainly think the pandemic has um, has made it even more so because people are trying to be creative in how we can experience theater. So uh, Diana, uh, the musical um, that was set to open um, last spring uh, is going to um, be uh, captured for Netflix. And I think that will happen before we resume. So people get to experience that. Um, and that's a wonderful development. Um, so I, I think that if this drags on longer, there will probably be more desire for people to, um, to get theater captured in some way and, and, and into people's homes so that um, we can experience it. And perhaps there's, um, there's economic incentives for for the show, for the writers, for the actors. I'm not quite sure how it all works, but I assume there would be. So that's a, that's a good development. Um, before this was happening, there were this, the, the musicals were being um, adapted for film. I mean, I, was, I, was, I, I still am, and I'm, I can't wait for the In the Heights. Um, kind of literally weeping in the theater when I watched the preview. Um, and I'm so excited that the prom uh, is is airing yes. soon, and 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 they I I know that they had to finish filming um, during the pandemic. So how wonderful that they were able to finish, and that that's 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 happening. Um, and um, so so these are all wonderful things. I mean, nothing is going to replace the um, the experience of live theater, but I do think that if this continues to go, this pandemic continues to to um, to drag on that that. People are going to continue to try to be creative and figure out how they get theater. Um, we saw what a, what, a, what a bonanza Hamilton was over the summer. How wonderful! Um, so um, so 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 we'll see. We'll see how it all. But but I do think that even before this, musicals are in great demand, and um, uh, whether it's a musical episode for a television show or a, a musical that's being um, you know I was watching um, uh, American Utopia last night, which you know, luckily for me, I got to experience in the theater um, and it's just thrilling and it's beautifully directed and performed. I'm so glad that that exists and I, I want to watch it over and over to experience it. So um, that's the best thing. The best thing is if you can make something in theater and then you can, you can film it. Right. And, uh, but, but we just don't know where we are right now. So, so I think people are just trying to create. Yeah. I just hope in the void, it's not, you know, recasting all of it to, you know, Hollywood stars versus kind of the people that work on Broadway. You know what I mean? It's, I don't know, it's kind of a little unfair exchange, but I hope not too much of that goes on. So there's a, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's a reality. And, and, and I think that um, uh, I also, I also think that there are so many people that want to do musicals. So, um, so uh, for us, it was, it, it was wonderful uh, when we did the Disney, um, 
when we did the adaptation of Freaky Friday for um, the Disney Channel, Heidi Blickenstaff, who created the role um, of uh, the mom and then and then the daughter inside the mom, um, uh, she she originated it uh, at our regional production at the Signature Theater and also did it on the a little tour that we had, um, and then she ended up playing the role in the film. So. Um, uh, and and I know John Moy Young, who originated Frankie Valley on Broadway uh, in Jersey Boys, was in the Clint Eastwood film adaptation. So um, it, it 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 happens. But there's also obviously, I mean, as a writer, um, someone said to me that this big star wants to do um, Next Normal or If Then or I mean, we already actually Adina Menzel was uh, one of the biggest stars. Um, how lucky that we had Adina do do If Then, um, but. Um, it's, it's so it's so that's an exciting thing too. Is there any plan for like next to normal following this path of going on to be a filmed? Uh, there, there's there's project? been interest in it really from uh, I would say when when the show um, found its success in that spring of of two thousand nine, but but um, nothing firm at the moment. There are no plans for 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 a film. Um, so. Uh, I mean, it's interesting topical material. I mean, you guys kind of broke through walls with the topical material of that show. I mean, bipolarness, you know, open opiates, you know, pharmacological drugs to treat this stuff. I mean, I was kind of on the edge, what you guys did with this play. And it, I don't know, maybe it's, seems like it would work during a pandemic to some degree. Um, we still have some of those problems, clearly. It, it definitely... It's, I think it's, it's 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 always going to be topical because this is the human condition and these are the challenges that we face. Um, but in adapting a musical for a film, you just have to make sure you see, I think, a cinematic way forward. How will the how will the the material be able to work um, on screen? And um, uh, I don't think that we necessarily, Brian and I, have felt like for us. That we've been able to see that yet. Um, not to say that we we couldn't, um, but um, there are some musicals that quickly became films, and and there's some that we have been asking, when is that going to be a, a film? Why hasn't that happened yet? And it's just they all have their different path. Makes sense. That makes sense. And so, is there any um, with your creativity? Is there any? Uh, how do I ask this in a in a good way? Um, I think this through. Are there like routines or kind of habits or that kind of feed your creativity that you've had to do because the repetitiveness actually contributes? I think that as much as I can get into a zone of concentration and just being able to shut the world out, um, a lot of it is from taking in art, especially listening to music. Um, I've been. Uh, walking around um, um, New York just listening to Appalachian Spring, the beautiful Aaron Copeland composition. Um, and it's just when you have those earbuds in and you're listening to music like that, you're looking around, even if it's, if it's the beauty of the fall foliage mixed with the kind of strange, still unsettling vision of people walking around in masks all around New York City. But there's something that that music is telling you about that moment. And we've seen that. I mean, one of my favorite things about film is how, what was I watching? I was watching the movie once, um, that beautiful John Carney movie. 
and it's it's I don't know if you know that film, but it's after it's after Glenn Hansard um, has made his demo um, and is in the car with his bandmates um, and um, and and the record producer, and they're just sort of all talking, but they're listening to um, when your mind's made up, uh, and so you're just hearing the music as they're all speaking to one another and just kind of bantering, and you and I just thought all the scenes that they filmed of just talking and then the music's not there and, the, and then you put it together with the music and it changes the whole nature of what you're seeing. Um, there was a, um, I, I don't know, do you know the song, um, the Genesis song, Your Own Special Way? Yes. I just heard it for the first time a couple of days ago. I don't know the song. I'm a, I'm a big Genesis fan, but um, I was like, why don't I know this song? It's a beautiful song and it's a complicated song. It's, it's, a, it's, it's subtle. But the the meter it's it's it begins in six eight, um, you know. So it's dun 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 dun, and then suddenly the chorus is dun back to four, and it's, so it's it's a it's it's interesting composition, and then it's beautiful melody and and, and instrumentation, and suddenly I wanted to write. Hearing that piece of music made me want to go and create something. So that for me is usually what sparks it. If I hear something in the world that just says like oh oh. Now I want to put something in the world that makes me feel that way. Awesome. Music begets music. It's fantastic. For me, at least. <laughs> That's good. Um, and you've had like incredible people that you've collaborated with. I mean, you know, from Cameron to, you know, Brian's been a really good muse for you, you guys as a team. Um, you know, you've done a little bit with uh, Lynn manuel Was that more around the Emmys when you guys worked on that show? Or other Tonys? Or yeah. is that something else? No, we also collaborated on the musical Bring It On. Okay. Uh, also, Amanda Green, uh, the three of us wrote the score together. Um, and Lynn, actually, I've known Lynn since 2005. Um, because In the Heights was being developed with... Um, um, Jeffrey Seller and Robin Goodman and Kevin McCollum um, as um, uh, High Fidelity was happening. So, um, uh, so we were all hanging out together, the, the, the creative teams of In the Heights and, um, and High Fidelity. And it was so thrilling to get to be alongside and see that show um, uh, you know, have its first production at 37 Arts, which was called at that point, I think it's, it's now the Demena building in here in New York. Um, but, uh, but we became fast friends and then getting the chance to collaborate with him. Um, and, um, uh, I just, um, he's, he's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met, obviously because of how gifted he is, um, and where that gift comes from in terms of his humanity and his mm. love. And, uh, he just wears his heart on his sleeve. Um, and he's just, he's so kind and supportive. Um, he's meant a great deal to my older son, Michael, um, because he's known Michael since he was a kid. It was our first child and, and, and um, Lynn was at the birthday parties. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I think gave, gave Michael a, a, a diary of a wimpy kid collection that we still have and cherish. So uh, he's been an important part of my family and, and his family's so wonderful. I've gotten to be close with them. Um, uh, I remember driving up to uh, his wedding. I had just landed from uh, Norway where Next to Normal had, had its first um, international production and, um, and was exhausted and drove with Rita up to his wedding. And then suddenly being there, I was like, it was like, I didn't feel any ounce of 
exhaustion. It was, it was just thrilling to be in their company and see all the love in that room. So, so yeah, so Lynn, so Lynn, another great collaborator and, and yeah, many I've been, I've been blessed in this, in this business to work with incredible people. Are there any lessons from any of these collaborators that you've really taken at heart and taken with you throughout? Is there that you would share? I mean, you know, I, I don't know how much you want to ever share on that front, but just be kind of interesting what you've learned from being in a room with people at the top of their game. I think certainly about process, about taking yourself seriously, about being prepared, um, being genuine, collaborative is, is, is a really important thing to be open, to learn to fight for what you believe in and your ideas, but to also know that you're not going to be right all of the time. And that's why you're in these rooms because there are, uh, there are people who are going to teach you about your show, about this moment. Um, and it can be hard. Compromise is, is, is hard. Um, but it's, it's actually really satisfying when you find your way through the guidance of someone else. Um, and you also learn that in this business, there's a lot of disappointment, like in any, in anything, there's going to be, um, I don't like to use the word failure, but there's going to be moments that you don't get quite right. And um, how do you move forward um, when something doesn't quite go the way you wanted, especially because in this business, it goes hand in hand with livelihood, um, being able to make a living and, and um, survive as an artist. So um, I've learned a lot of lessons. Um, Hal Prince um, is someone that I, I, I was very close to. Um, and, and I remember after High Fidelity, he gave me a lot of advice. And I just thought, wow, if, if Hal Prince is talking to me and taking an interest in what just happened and trying to help me, that must mean I'm doing something right. And uh, he's, he, he said this publicly, so it wasn't just something that he said to me. A lot of people know this advice, but um, taking a meeting the next day on, your, on a new show the morning after your, your current show opens. So just saying, I'm always moving forward. No matter what happens tonight, tomorrow, I'm starting on a new project. And that's, I'm saying that no matter what happens. That's, a, that's really wonderful advice. And it just speaks to how you have to just keep believing in yourself, keep moving forward, keep thinking you have stories to tell. You can't control so much of this, but you can control what you say, how you say it, um, and, and the kind of career you want to have. And that to me has, has spoken really to my heart. Well, Hell Prince is certainly a legend. So very good advice too. I like that piece of advice. Can't yeah. wallow in the nostalgia or what you've accomplished already. You got to move on. So, yep. Yep. Um, so you mentioned a few things you've already been listening to. Um, aside from Genesis, is there anything else that's kind of <laughs> ticking your box right now? Anything great? Um, I'm listening to actually um, a lot of jazz. Um, right now, I'm listening to a lot of Oscar Peterson. Um, I, 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 uh, I took out an album that I haven't listened to in a long time that my friend John Bacchino recorded. It's a Richard Rogers piano album. Um, and it's beautiful, these beautiful piano arrangements that John created. Um, he just plays, John has a, um, has, has, has just a, a, a gorgeous style. Um, to me, it speaks, uh, it, it, a lot of it speaks in the kind of Americana stuff that I love of, of Aaron Copeland and Charles Ives and um, these very complicated, but, but musically beautiful 
uh, tonalities and the har uh, harmonies. Um, so that was something I really enjoyed listening to the other day and kind of in a moment of, of, of fear and trepidation about where we are, just brought me great comfort. Um, I've been listening to actually going back into Billy Joel, um, just, just, just listening to um, combinations, some stuff of juxtaposing later period stuff with the early recordings. Um, uh, and um, Springsteen, I've been listening to um, a lot of um, song like uh, uh, Kingdom of Days, which is speaking to me right now. I don't know if you know that song, but it's just a, such a beautiful song. You know, the, the, the lyric, um, we laugh beneath the covers, um, the wrinkles and the grays. It's like such a, he's just, a, he's always such a poet and um, he's, he's speaking to me. Um, you too, I've been listening to a lot of, um, and then as I said, I've been walking around listening to a lot of Aaron Copeland, um, a lot of Appalachian Spring, which um, in this moment of great uncertainty, and um, I don't know, there's a lot obviously that is scary about um, what's going on in the country. Um, that piece of music has always spoken to me about beauty and discovery and awakening. Um, and um, so, so that's something that's been very important to feel right now. Well, listen, I'm going to cut you loose. I know you have <laughs> ch children at home too. That you have to do some homeschooling. I, I got to make some breakfast. My son has to eat. Uh oh, you got to do that Don't for sure. Him. Nothing happens. <laughs> um, I am so extraordinarily proud of what you've become, um, your accomplishments. Um, your talent was very apparent to me, obviously, and it has nothing to do with me. It just Sometimes you're self-aware enough to notice what other people bring to the table. So, uh, and in your Thanks. case, I got it right, maybe. So, thank you, Nick. And and and, and the last thing I'll say, which I, I don't even know if I told you, um, I I have a record deal. So, hey. signed me to um, to make uh, to a deal that I get to record the Tom Kid album. Congratulations! And Need an A and R man? I'm retired. I can come out of retirement. <laughs> I mean, if you want to help anyone that I, I basically want to want to take a big, big swing at something and make a sonic statement of just the kind of album that I, I mean, I, I would never put myself in this category, obviously, but what Bruce Springsteen went through to make Born to Run and how, how much he um, lived and breathed that album. And obviously there were a lot of challenges if you read up, if you read about it in terms of the studio and, but, uh, and a lot riding on it. And then he made this symphonic, brilliant expression and so um i don't know maybe in this moment right now as i think about that album i can find some 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 big passion to write about and create when we're through this yeah no this is good timing for you for that so get at it pal quit quit, lazing, quit lazing around <laughs> you don't sound busy enough quit lazing around so uh, there's a lot of projects you know that are not music related going out of the house you know organizing <laughs> albums so there's that too <laughs> Awesome. All right, Tom, thank you so much. I'm so grateful you did this. Um, and may your family and you stay healthy during this challenging world. So, you too. And I hope to speak to you again soon and hopefully see you soon, even better. So Yes, that will happen. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com, um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. Till next week.